Now let's come back to the <clears throat> connection I made at the beginning of this talk between epistemology, epistemological questions and concerns regarding sensing the soul and the uh, question about similar questions uh, with respect to, to values. So remember, epistemology is, is about knowing. Why is it okay to say, I had experience X and I had experience Y, but I am only allowed to say, um, in having experience X and experience Y, I knew X, but I can't say, I know Y, I knew Y. You understand? Some things, we can say we have whatever experience you had, but in terms of knowledge, knowledge of reality, that's the epistemological remit, what, what constitutes, what qualifies as knowledge. How can we know? What are the modes of knowing? What is knowable? Um, why can I say of some experiences that there was a knowing, and of other experiences they were just experiences? And epistemologically they have... Uh, second or third or whatever class status, fourth class status maybe. And so there's that whole question with regard to sensing the soul, and then it's linked to this uh, a similar kind of question with regard to values. So I can say, uh, it, or it's, it's deemed okay for me to say, I know this bag of potatoes weighs X kilograms. That's fine. Or I know they are potatoes. Or, I know we were in a car crash the other day. Once I get to things like, I know this is beautiful, then some people start to get a little bit nervous. Um, I know this is more beautiful than that. Um, or, I, I recognize, I know beauty, I know goodness, I know love. And this is a knowing of values. I experience a sense of beauty. I experience this as good. I experience love. I know gets a little uh, more tricky when 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 values are involved, or people uh, are are less willing generally in the culture to grant the same epistemological status as knowing there are potatoes in front of me and they weigh x kilograms knowing that this piece of metal smashed into that piece of metal at X miles an hour. If I say, I know this tree loves me. I know this tree, this tree that I love, I know it loves me. If I say, I, I feel that it does, or I experience that it does, that it loves me, uh, that's generally more acceptable. People might raise an eyebrow too, but to say, I know, that it loves me. It seems like an epistemological step too far for our culture. So I want to really kind of open up this area a little bit of ontology and epistemology and um, I hope you can get a sense of how important it is and just maybe can we just walk around in there and pick up some stones and overturn them and see what's underneath and that kind of thing in, in that domain of ontological and epistemological questions, just a little bit. Um, values have been relegated slowly in terms of their truth status in our culture 
they are, as I said, um, especially with, with as modernism sort of rolled into postmodernism, kind of you know, in a way inevitably, um, or a certain kind of postmodernism at least, uh, the dominant kind of postmodernism. Um, the values are just regarded as, as I said, historically conditioned, culturally conditioned opinions of what is beautiful, of what is good, etc. Um, so to say, I know this value, I, I know it to be there, um, uh, has, it, it, its status has been epistemologically ontologically relegated. Now, the connection with sensing with soul is partly, an, it's in that it's analogous, it's, it's kind of parallel there's an epistemological parallel in in the relegation. As I said, if I say, I know this tree loves me, um, or this uh, imaginal dimension of uh, my friend's being, or whatever, um, I know that, um, again, it, it seems too far for the modern, the modern uh, outlook, the dominant modern outlook. So the partly it's a parallel the, uh, with the epistemological kind of um, cramping with sensing the soul, and partly it's because, as I pointed out, sensing the soul includes a sensing of value. Um, so there's th- these these are kind of bound up together just by analogy, but also because one is included in the other, or oh, they weave together. Um, It is sensing with soul, the sensing with soul of others, of the world, of the self, um, that in our time needs epistemological validation. Um, When we come to purely intrapsychic images, um, as opposed to extrapsychic sensing with soul, let's say, that tree loves me, this tree loves me, as as an example of an extrapsychic image. Uh, so-called uh, sensing the soul. Um, when we contrast that with a purely intrapsychic um, imaginal image, um, it, it needs, uh, it seems to need a different kind of, uh, that kind of validation less. In other words, there's a kind of validation that m- most people these days perhaps would give most many people in our in our culture would give a certain validity, epistemological validity, to intrapsychic Im- images, just because we've had more than a hundred years of psychoanalysis, etc., post Freud, um, so that most um, <clears throat> most people, uh, well, let's say many people, would accept that the psyche has a kind of intelligence regarding our inner life and feelings. Um, and the moral uh, kind of intelligence of the psyche regarding um, uh, its moral judgment of our actions in the world, and it manifests this intelligence. The psyche manifests this intelligence through images, in dreams, um, in our imagination, uh, and in, in in many ways, in many forms. Uh, but dreams and imagination would would be uh, dominant ones, uh, common ones. Um, so that degree of validation, like th- there is a kind of knowing. If I get an image of something and it's, uh, it, it, or a dream of something, it may be, or at least many people in society, in our society, would would regard it as having a certain um, validity as some kind of knowing. 
but in regard to um, my inner life, my inner feelings, my, uh, 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 some part of myself, if you like, um, reflecting and reflecting on another part of myself or, or where I've acted or s- relationship that I have to certain people or certain things in my life or my childhood or whatever it is. And so there's a certain uh, knowing there um, manifested in the image and we can know that knowing. And so when we sort of interpret this uh, dream or this image in a certain way that constitutes a knowledge of ourself, we say, then, then we're knowing it. When it comes to extra-psychic images, um, it's, uh, it's really these that need the epistemological validation or champion, championing or uh, perhaps promotion after their relegation. Uh, over the last hundreds and hundreds of years, um, and perhaps a different kind of promotion. So, this tree that I love, if we take that as an example, this tree that I love, how do I feel, sense that it loves me? How do I know that it loves me, that love flows between us? Uh, there's an epistemological, ontological question. How, how can I feel justified in saying, I know that this tree loves me? Let's, let's linger with this a little bit. When my friend says she, he, they love me, how do I know that she, he, they love me? Uh, saying I love you as uh, any honest and mature human being knows, doesn't guarantee the truth of that love. With respect to, I don't know, someone uh, incapable of expressing their love verbally or in obviously uh, interpretable um, motion or gesture, say someone who's uh, paralyzed. Uh, uh, Did you see that film, My Left Foot, with Daniel Day-Lewis? It was many, many years ago. I thought it was fabulous. And um, he plays a um, uh, a boy with cer- cerebral palsy who uh, cannot speak and uh, has very limited motion just in his left foot. So he's essentially paralyzed and rendered incapable of communication for much of his um, adult life. And... One of the things I found so touching and and beautiful in that movie was the relationship he had with his mother Um, and their love uh, both ways. But how did she know that he loved him? He loved her, excuse me. How did she know that he loved her? Uh, He was incapable of expressing it. And even when, it's a complicated thing, but even in a way when he did eventually manage to express it, uh, it was uh, dismissed uh, by by some people uh, around him. So he, how can he's just a vegetable? Uh, was the sort of view, um, and she very movingly for me say said to him at one point when they were alone. She looks at him. I can't remember what his name was, but she said, "You know, sometimes, sometimes I think you are my soul." Uh, very beautiful, but. In that sort of situation, or say with a pet or a dog, um, incapable of expressing their love verbally on some obviously interpretable motion or gesture, um, and in the absence of some scientific measure of love, how do we know 
that this being loves me. How do we know? We could open it up even more. We could say, well, what is love anyway? Is love a feeling? Is love an action? Is love uh, a commitment to action? Which actions? And when? Uh, Maybe it's an attitude. Is love an attitude? Or is love a tendency to try to view and act in a certain way? None, none of those as possible definitions is universally agreed upon or, or enacted by, by human beings. So, in relation to something like love, we have a problem, uh, epistemologically. <clears throat> but this tree that I love, loves me. I know that. I know that the way lovers know. The way lovers know, not just that they love, but they are loved. The way they feel that. How do I know it? By what organ of perception? By what instrument of knowing? By what mode of knowing do I know that? I could say I know it in my heart. I know it in or through the soul. I also know it in my body, in the touch. This tree that I love loves me and I know that the way lovers know. So what we call perceiving imaginally or sensing with soul, perceptions of the imaginal, soul-making perceptions, always involve, although they are not reducible to, they always involve sensing value. For example, beauty uh, or or, uh, loveliness or meaningfulness or, or whatever. Goodness. And knowing values, like beauty or goodness or love, is not, it seems, as simple as knowing what is material, what is measurable, and what is socially agreed upon reality. This is why there's there's a difficulty here uh, for us nowadays. In the modern West, we find it hard, or it is not so generally accepted, um, and especially, as I said, after postmodernism, to claim we know something's beauty, or even something's goodness. Um, We are only kind of allowed, it's only sort of politically correct, to claim a subjective perspective. I find that very beautiful, or I find that very not beautiful, or not beautiful, or whatever. And and there's this, you know there's really some intelligence in that. It's this escape from dogma and this freeing up of the individual subjectivity to grow in its own way and find its own sensitivities, etc. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to go. It's easy to go to another extreme here, because only a, a kind of if there, even there is such a thing, a completely unpassionate human being, and even then only. Um, with regard to what does not involve him or her or them. Um, only such a person in such a r- relationship or situation will say and really believe um, regarding a sense of right or wrong in terms of value or beauty or whatever, re- will say and really believe when they say it, it's all relative and only a matter of opinion. Uh, so, for me, 
to consent to the possibility that the the Smurfs do you remember the Smurfs? <laughs> I checked with Mark and Ava, and they're much younger than I am. They remember the Smurfs, so um, hopefully most of you will. So they were like these little blue uh, kind of dwarf-like cartoon characters, and they had a few hit singles, and I mean, a hit movie, and number one pop, top of the pop singles, and I think a few of them. And um, uh but to, for me, to consent to the, even the possibility that the, the Smurfs songs are as beautiful, if we take beauty as a value, are as beautiful as um, Beethoven's late string quartets or uh, John Coltrane uh, solos uh, or whatever. Um, politically correct as that might be, that's not okay to say that one is uh, really more beautiful. But actually... If if I were t- to say that, uh, or to be kind of in a situation where I'm forced to say that, it I can feel something. It does something in my soul and my cells. It's um, and yet to to imply that it's not so, to imply that one is more beautiful than the other, and I know that um, is kind of not politically correct. We're not granted that <coughs> epistemological validity of knowing with regard to to beauty. What we know in... You see the connection here? Why are we talking about the Smurfs now? Um, The the question of um, claiming, making knowledge claims, epistemological claims with regard to values is and so with regard to beauty, with regard to the Smurfs, is related to um, our hesitation, our shyness, our withdrawing, our um, um, uh, non-claims, if, if such there be, or possibility of making knowledge claims with regard to sensing the soul. Because what we know in soul ways of knowing, as I said, always partly involves values and ideals. Uh, not only... Um, what is measurable or material or socially agreed upon. <clears throat> so if we remember that when we talked about the spectrum of uses of the imagination, we said, well, there's papancha, and then there's a kind of possibly mindful images and mindful healing images and um, uh, imagination and intrapsychic images and uh, we could say extrapsychics, sensing the soul images. It's really in that little list along that spectrum there, excuse me, it's really um, the epistemology and the ontology of that last category, the extra-psychic sensing the soul, and to some degree the intra-psychic, that, that's the category that's tricky for us. The pancha we just dismiss. Um, even if we put into that into that little spectrum, if we insert the, the kind of the image that comes with uh, ESP, or extrasensory perception, um, it's really that last one because we can find a category. Oh, it was it was valid that dream I have that turned out to be a premonition of this hap- happening, or gave me some information in advance, so to speak, of some event happening. Um, 
or whatever it was, or uh, something that minds can can do under certain conditions. In a way, it's really not a big deal, but on another level, it is a big deal because it has lots of implications. Um, but that in itself, it's easy to find epistemological and ontological um, a slot there. It's like, oh, okay, so I knew this in advance somehow, and. Um, even though it wasn't proved until that thing actually happened and I found out that it was true, um, there was a clearly some kind of knowing in advance. And so we can give it that uh, place in... We, we can support it with its own kind of ontology and epistemology. The thing that's um, difficult with the epistemology there is just that, as I said, we don't know its knowledge until we've uh, checked it with... Uh, Asking our friend, were you in such a place there? Or, or they do call when we dreamt that they would call, or we get some news when we dreamt that the news would be such and such as opposed to something else. And we only know, get it checked off as knowledge at that point. Um, but still, epistemologically and ontologically, doesn't seem to create that much problem. But particularly the extra psychic sensing with soul, it's that that's tricky for us. Um, if we connect that to what we've been saying about values, um, images that might come, and remember images might mean any any sense modality, but dream images or, 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 or some kind of um, extrasensory perception images um, in any of the sense stories, um, don't seem to involve a sense of values so much. I mean, this is just my observation. See what you think. I think, I think it's... Uh, fair to say. They're, they don't feel imaginal. They don't have those qualities, those aspects and elements that we ran through in, in the list. Um, it's, it's almost like just a communication of information. They don't have um, the set, they're, they're not uh, permeated by uh, a sense of beauty or meaningfulness or um, maybe meaning, but not meaningfulness, not depth, not unfathomability, um, etc., they feel um, ESP images, if we can call them that, feel just kind of matter-of-fact. They're bits of information only, really. Um, and they don't have that whole imaginal constellation of elements and aspects that we ran through in the first talk. Uh, so they feel very ESP experiences, um, feel... Jet- feel very matter-of-fact, they're, you know, ordinary in themselves. As I said, perhaps when we reflect on the fact that we can even have such experiences at times, or I think it's it's really the mind under certain conditions has such experiences, and it's, uh, you know, we look at it that way, it has nothing to do with ego. Um, But when we reflect, perhaps when we reflect on the fact that we can have such experiences, um, and reflect on what the implications are for the understanding the nature of awareness or mind, consciousness, and its relationship with matter, um, then um, then that whole uh, reflection and acknowledgement and recognition can be and feel soul-making for us if it's a new reflection and a new opening of the logos there. Um, but the sense and texture of the actual ESP perception or image itself is often very ordinary. It doesn't have a sense of holiness or divinity or or, all the rest of it to it. 
there are other kinds of perceptions. I'm just I'm going back to this kind of I think I brought it right at the beginning of the um, path of the imaginal retreat. This kind of like you know, is there some kind of classification or categorization of different kinds of uses of the imagination? Because there are other kinds of perceptions. Someone was telling me about um, being present at her grandmother's death and uh, being aware somehow of her grandmother's um, soul or awareness uh, entering another realm, leaving this realm and entering another realm and sensing the joy and the gift and the wonder and the revelation of that. Now, in that kind of perception, there's immense meaningfulness, a sense of beyondness, depth, divinity, wonder. Um, the energy body, as she, as she experienced that, was harmonized and open and <clears throat> all the rest of it. So those kind of perceptions are closer to imaginal perceptions, um, though they are taken as uh, true and real rather than in a kind of very theater sense, in that imaginal middle way sense that we were emphasizing. So there's perhaps all kinds of divisions here um, in terms of ontology and epistemology. How to distinguish these different perceptions of other dimensions or realms from what we're calling imaginal images and soul-making perceptions, sensing the soul, how to tell the difference. Um, it may well be that some of what we um, uh, classify today as imaginal and neither real nor unreal um, may at other times and places in human history, both in the past and in the future, be classified as real and accurate perceptions of matters of fact. You understand? Just because, what I said before, ideas in history change and that influences massively our sense, our, even if we're not philosophers and we don't even think about it, we've never heard of these words, ontology and epistemology, massively, ideas in the culture massively influence that. And that will influence how we um, think of all these um, different kinds of experiences involving the imagination. But there is uh, a certain subset of experiences uh, that we might call ESP. Um, ESP regarding uh, matters of fact in this material world um, that, are, that just feel very ordinary and unimaginable in, in, in the sense uh, that we've outlined it, of, of the imaginal constellation, the elements, the aspect. So I, I think this is very complex, and can it be an open question? Can it remain an open question? I don't know anyone who's figured out, uh, certainly not to many other people's satisfaction and agreement, um, some kind of categorization of the ontology and epistemology involved in different different um, uh, sense perceptions, if we include sensing the soul and imaginal perceptions. Perhaps there are grey areas, perhaps there are crossovers and in-betweens. Complex. Uh, interesting. Complex. I think for us right now, apart from, again, just wanting to sort of walk around in this area and turn over some stones that maybe haven't been turned over for quite a while and kind of create a bit of space in there in, in what can usually be actually really... Uh, uh, a domain that doesn't have any space to walk around in. It's just given to us. This is how things are. This is what's worthy of respect. This is not worthy of respect. Um, so just wanting to walk around in there. I think at a minimum right now, let's say that, um, we could say that uh, 
experientially, even when we do kind of hold to this imaginal middle way and a kind of, no, we're not really saying it's real, we're not really saying it's unreal, um, per- the, those perceptions, those imaginal perceptions, that sensing the soul can have a huge effect, even with the kind of middle way held with regard to ontological status and reality. Can, they can have, that can have a huge effect, that sensing the soul, that imaginal, uh, uh, imaginal middle way imaginal perceptions with the imaginal middle way can have a huge effect on our conceptual frameworks, on our orientations, on the directions we have in life, on what we're devoted to, on our whole sense of existence, and actually on our ontology, epistemology, cosmology, etc., etc. So just picking up on that point, you know, um, it may be that humanity may uh, not ever arrive at a uh, conclusive and finally complete answer or truth regarding the uh, ontic status of imaginal images of what we sense with soul. It, that may be. It may be that there's no way of finally knowing any of this for sure. Um, but phenomenologically we can notice. In other words, in our experience, we can notice that adopting or finding ourselves in the imaginal middle way, that is, sensing images or soul-making perceptions as neither real nor not real, um, that adopting that stance or finding ourselves in that stance uh, regarding imaginal perception or sensing the soul automatically and often effortlessly allows us to have and feel, with respect to an image, with respect to a perception, sense perception, a sense of duty with freedom and relative non-attachment. A sense of, senses of sacredness and meaningfulness without fixation or tightness. Senses of depth that are still open to more discovery. So, phenomenologically, um, kind of, the stance of the middle way, the poise of this middle way, of holding that or finding oneself in that, is a very helpful and fruitful perspective. And we can notice that. We can notice how it feels for us um, uh, as we receive the the gifts there of, of freedom, of energy, of wonder, of beauty, of joy. In other words, this poise of the middle way is very, very fruitful and helpful in terms of freedom, energy, wonder, beauty, joy, devotion, soul-making, etc. Conversely, we can see and uh, we can notice, we can feel what happens um, when an image is rarefied or literalized. We can see what happens, we can see what dies. Something tends to die when that imaginal, way gets, imaginal middle way gets squeezed, when the theatre goes out of it. Uh, something dies in the whole experience. Um, and how those gifts of freedom, energy, wonder, beauty, joy, uh, particularly the freedom, um, are often unavailable when an image is rarefied or literalized. So, 
as is often the case, and I've said uh, before, we need to look to the effects of our way of looking to inform our choices, our stances, our attitudes, our perspectives and conceptions. But what we can say is that the, the stance of the middle way, the stance of the imaginal middle way, brings really good results. We, we, can, we, we feel its bounty, its fruitfulness. As I said, when we're talking about theatre, it, it's powerful, it has effects, but it, we recognise the theatre of it. Um, and one, one of the fruits is the soul-making. And at the same time, it's not... The, we could go a little further with the uh, ontology and epistemology involved here. You know, the, adopting that middle way is, in, in some respects, very fruitful. In some respects, it's also a relatively cautious approach. <clears throat> so I think in, in uh, was it the end of the Eros on Feta talk, I mentioned a phrase, I don't know who coined it, about metaphysics, um, and a sort of disparaging comment by someone or other, that metaphysics is, is uh, that branch of philosophy is... Um, which for some people just translates as anything spiritual um, or anything what we would call soulful um, translates as um, or is equivalent to being in a dark basement, pitch black basement uh, looking for a dark black cat that is not there and that that whole uh, way of talking about other dimensions and divinity and all this business um, is is something equivalent to that. So it's quite a disparaging comment, and I can't remember if I made the point. But what if I hung out in such a basement, uh, wanting to find such a black cat, and uh, maybe someone gives me an infrared goggles, or maybe I start not looking with my eyes, but touching with my body, with my hands, and the feeling and the senses there. Maybe my eyes just get used to the dark. And actually, there is a cat there, and I experience that cat for myself. And then what was called metaphysics just becomes the valid conceptualizing or attempt at conceptualizing and forming conceptual frameworks um, with regard to what I experience. Because here I am touching this um, soft, warm, furry thing that has and looks and feels uh, and sounds like a cat, a black cat. Um, so just actually like science is the endeavor of creating a valid concepts and valid conceptual frameworks of what we experience. And just as Buddhism is, whether it's um, a kind of quote, you know, in inverted commas, religious Buddhism or inverted commas, secular Buddhism, involves a valid conceptualizing of what we can experience and what we do experience, or at least what some people experience. If I didn't, it didn't occur to me to start um, sensing with my touch to find the cat, if my eyes didn't get used to the dark, if I didn't spend long enough that my eyes got used to the dark, if I no one gave me or I didn't find that there were a pair of infrared goggles there that I could also use, I wouldn't experience the back cat. And I would consider this is all just ridiculous waste of time conjecture, metaphysics in the most disparaging sense of the word. But once I experience it, through my m m meditative um, uh, 
dedication and, and work and practice and opening up and careful, intelligent practice, once I experience things, then those things come into the realm of why I need some kind of conceptual framework for these things. And if I experience them regularly and a lot, and if they make a difference in my life, I, I'm, I'm going to need some kind of valid conceptual framework around that. Just like science, just like, um, uh, actually, and any kind of uh, philosophy, whether it's a sort of uh, educated philosophy or just a sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, every, every man sort of working philosophy. And, uh, again, in, in, with regard to ontology and epistemology, science and philosophy debate um, ongoingly the... Um, the being or non-being or ontic status, reality status of what seems most evidently there. Ontological debates still go on in science and philosophy regarding um, things that we experience and seem things that seem really obvious. Chairs, chariots, cats, quarks, all this is um, still up for ontological debate in the realm of science and the philosophy of science and also wider philosophy. Same with God, same with divinities, same with soul. It, we experience it, it seems evident to uh, our senses with practice. And so it can be drawn in, uh, there's a validity to drawing it in to the ontological and epistemological debate. Experience must be accounted for, generally speaking. So no one's, uh, generally, whatever um, philosophy, again, even if it's not worked out philosophy or, or conceptual structure, um, we account for experience with our ideas. Somehow we try to account for experience with our ideas, put it that way. And again, we inherit or are... Uh, receive impacted by a whole set of um, hierarchies and value systems or hierarchies regarding um, uh, regarding ontology and epistemology by from the cultures that we move in so if we regard or if you, you know someone might regard well someone who's say tone deaf or colorblind um, you know we regard them I mean obviously people polite about it or, or you know and not offensive but we, we somehow regard them well somehow that um, perception is um, or as a perceiver there's something I don't know what the word would be inadequate or not quite competent or deficient there or an autistic person um, and uh, someone who's autistic one of the theories of what's going on there is they can't um, read um, emotions in in the in another person so it's as if another person is devoid of emotion for them of emotional reality there's no reality to them they can't actually perceive it and again generally in terms of psychological diagnostics we regard autism as a kind of pathology and there's a perceptual deficiency inadequacy incompetency there uh, and now some people would and again it, it's not 
quite politically correct, but it's it's pretty dominant that we might regard, um, let's say, a pre-modern, so-called pre-modern tribe, an indigenous tribe somewhere, and that whole worldview would regard them also as deficient um, or incompetent perceivers and conceivers and thinkers because they don't have science in the way that we do. They don't have that scientific methodology or that scientific uh, directionality. Um, but we could ask, isn't that um, uh, an epistemological colonialism? That just, we've got this view and we're convinced this is right and this is better. They are deficient just like an autistic person um, is deficient in their perception. And conception just like a colorblind or tone deaf person is also deficient in their perception of uh, uh, color and sound. There's a kind of uh, bias there of uh, what we could call a kind of epistemological colonialism. Our culture is right. That culture is wrong. We know what's real. They, They are barking up the wrong tree with regard to reality. Why just in principle, don't uh, someone who thinks that way um, accept um, this culture's regard for um, my, your inability to perceive souls or spirits, for example, in nature, something we might call akin to sensing the soul. Why don't we perceive that as a deficiency? Like, that's a kind of autism. We are simply unable to see some aspect of reality. Like tone deafness or like color blindness. We, our culture or the dominant culture has ruled out that as qualifying um, for uh, reality status. It's got a a, a relegated ontological status and any kind of knowing uh, that one might claim is not justified. Any kind of, I know this tree's spirit, um, whatever it is, I know this forest spirit, um, uh, that's not given uh, its epistemological validation. So we could really um, push at this... uh, at, at, at this um, circumscription, this cramping that has been given to us, imposed on us by really the dominant culture. In in regarding, uh, I mean, in regarding um, ontology and all that, I. I actually regard it as a never-ending um, exploration. The, I, I don't think that humanity will ever um, fully answer these questions. Um, it's more like they're the questions themselves and the positions that various cultures take um, with regard to them over time is more like part of the, 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 the story of humanity. It's part of the sole evolution of humanity. Um, Conceptual frameworks, ontologies, epistemologies um, reflect and engender soul-making. Um, they, certain conceptions, certain ontologies, certain epistemologies can open up um, uh, possibilities for soul-making. Certain emphases of conceptual frameworks um, open up soul-making differently. 
so that that ontological and epistemological conceiving becomes part of the whole soul-making movement, potentially. What's quite popular in a lot of modern philosophies, some philosophies such as Richard, philosophers such as Richard Rorty, for instance, who's quite popular in some circles, um, just kind of uh, almost look back in history and and just acknowledge that um, the whole uh, endeavor, philosophical and scientific endeavor, to arrive at a kind of conclusive ontology and epistemology um, has proved uh, unsuccessful so far. And therefore their attitude is just to drop that whole investigation, just um, kind of shrug and give up and leave it and kind of poo-poo the whole, that whole, those whole kind of threads and investigations and explorations in, in philosophy. What it seems to me, reading someone like Richard Rorty more, more closely and the people who say that kind of thing or espouse that kind of thing, is that they're saying to drop the or drop all ontology and epistemology. Um, but actually what happens is there is a default um, reversion to just whatever is the dominant, unconscious, and usually unquestioned ontology of, of, the, of the main culture. In other words, um, Rorty often lets slip, you know, I don't think he's even quite conscious of it, that his notion of reality is a kind of atomistic physicalist one of atoms moving in space, etc., according to random and you know randomly according to meaningless laws, etc. That's kind of underpinning uh, or, or hidden. It's a, his hidden default ontology and the epistemology that goes with it. Despite the talk of let's just drop all this talk of ontology and epistemology, because people just argue let's just keep everything open so that we can move forward together in a spirit of harmony. Actually, underneath there's a, a real entrenchment and preference for one kind of ontology and epistemology. In other words, the secular, modernist, scientific, materialist, dominant um, ontology and epistemology over and above anything um, so-called spiritual, religious, soulful, etc. So if, uh, you know, if there is this kind of never-ending philosophical possibility that soul-making is potentially never-ending, and part of soul-making is logos, and that too is never-ending, and part of logos is the exploration of ontology and epistemology and opening them up and trying different things out and uh, shifting ideas and all that. Um, and if soul-making is endless, then um, and part of that endlessness is the endlessness, the never-endingness of ontological and epistemological exploration or conceiving, creation, discovery, play. And it might be that one of the ideas that uh, is, is perhaps its time has come, uh, let's say, might be this idea of participation. Because up to now, one has... Uh, the, the, the dominant philosophical and scientific modes have really veered towards a kind of... Ob- objectivism and subjectivism. This goes all the way back to Descartes and and before. It's like um, that uh, reality is what is objectively, independently real. And you can talk about what's subjectively true for me or my opinion or my taste or or whatever or my, my just 
you know, being a pawn of the culture and being totally culturally conditioned and moved about by the trends in history and historically contingent. But basically, um, there's a gulf between subject and object. A notion like participation um, is, is in a way, a very ancient concept and, and goes back to Plato, and I don't know much about how he used it, and I know that uh, he was actually quite... Well, I know that he was actually quite vague. He never really filled out what he meant by it. Um, for me, it strikes me as a very important and possibly very um, rich and, and fertile notion and a really key concept. Um, and again, it's hard to fit it out, but one of the things that we touched on before about participation is it neither... Um, does not fall into a kind of view of subjectivism, nor a view of objectivism. Reality is what is objectively independent, or everything is just dependent on the subject. There's some kind of mutual participation of what we typically conceive of as object, and typically conceive of as subject. What we typically conceive of truth, and what we typically conceive of a knower of truth. So instead of being truth is objectively real, we are participating in the creation slash discovery of truth. Creation and discovery of truth. There's some word between or straddling or encompassing both creation and discovery that participation, the word participation hints at. So it's a really deep concept that Im- that, that um, uh, embraces and involves ontology and epistemology and reality and notions of God and uh, all of that. Even notions of awakening, as I as I uh, uh, alluded, as I mentioned in in one talk. So none of these things, um, matter, reality, selves, uh, subjects, objects, truth, liberation, soul, divinity. All of them are participated in. We participate in creating, discovering all of that. Um, To me, a very profound uh, and and potentially very fertile concept. As as perhaps a new step in our um, play in Logos, which is part of our great play in soul-making. A new step... Um, in uh, our play with ontology and epistemology, conceptual frameworks, and how that uh, involved in that play is also what we perceive, what we sense, sensing the soul, perceiving imaginally. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.